Welcome to the Public Morality. Earlier this year, we were privileged to have Fordham University historian Brandon Gaucher on the Public Morality to discuss, at the time, his forthcoming book, Before Evil, Young Lenin, Hitler, Stalin, Mao, and Kim. Not only is the book set for release on April 26, but the world has changed since my conversation with Professor Gaucher, most notably Russia's invasion of Ukraine. One of the initial reviews on Before Evil comes from someone who is no stranger to the public morality, author Todd Brewster. And Brewster writes, the result is a book that is enlightening as it is disturbing, in part because we get a fresh view of history's criminals, more so because in them, we can also see ourselves. We are honored at the public rally to have this gifted scholar return on what is the inaugural interview of now his newly released book, Before Evil. Brandon Gaucher, welcome to the public morality. Oh, thanks so much for having me on again, Byron. It's uh, my pleasure. And as I've you know been give, giving interviews and thinking about this over the last few weeks, uh, it weighs heavy with everything going on in the world right now. The book Before Evil, Young Hitler, Lenin, Stalin, Mao, Mussolini, and Kim is an effort to grapple with the humanity of inhumanity. What is the human story behind how crimes against humanity come to be, but also the individuals that, that perpetrate them? How can we understand the early lives of some of the worst dictators who ever lived, men whose guilt is absolute? How can we return to a moment in their lives, though, before they were evil, when they were relatable human beings in so many respects, their childhoods, their early relationships? So the book is an effort to examine parallels in their lives. Uh, and in doing so, humanize them for the larger purpose of asking, how is it that human beings, not actual monsters, monsters don't actually exist, homo sapiens do, how is it that human beings do such things? And where do such individuals come from? This text, uh, in my view, offers an inverted order, and that is widely accepted that by humanizing individuals such as Stalin, Hitler, Mussolini, Mao, et al., we are somehow letting them off the hook for their barbarism. But you offer something different. Explain. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I would start with the core conviction of the reason for examining the lives of these individuals, these criminals, so closely is because we care so deeply about the horrific consequences of their lives. It is because uh, we can never stop the effort to try to understand a level of evil that we see play out in the Holocaust or in the famine that follows the Great Leap Forward in Mao's China. It's because of our conviction that we have to examine those things is explicable. How can we try to understand how they came to be? We may never get to the bottom of it, but it's that conviction that drives us to try to examine the lives of the those responsible for these crimes against humanity in greater detail. Now, if, if we humanize such individuals, uh, it, it in no way diminishes their guilt. It, it actually heightens their guilt. It actually makes them more guilty because these are not individuals who we would so often like to embrace the notion that they were simply born evil, that these are individuals who as kids were you know, hurting animals and were engaging in deeply disturbing behavior. And then we come away with this notion of a teleology, you know, an A to Z, that the, the mass murderer is born and then the cycle of their life plays out until they cause this great horror. That is not the story of their lives. The story of their childhoods are, are, are kids who had loving mothers. Kids who had certain advantages in their youths. Uh, none of this is to diminish the fact that there are real things like uh, men mental health issues and other factors that are a part of who they were. But humanize them, humanizing them makes them more guilty because it demonstrates that they had agency in their life. They developed a worldview that was not only about what happened to them, it was about what they chose to do. And this notion of, of free will and agency demonstrates over and over and over they were a product of larger structural factors beyond their control, but they chose their path. They chose to commit those crimes against humanity. Uh, I say in the book, and I've said before, that to humanize them is not the height of complicity. It is the antithesis of their tyranny. And that sort of begs the question, what do we mean when you say uh, humanizing them? I'm sure people hear that word and um, fill in the blank with their own definition. So what do you mean by humanizing someone? Sure. 
at the very core of it, by humanize, I mean that these are human beings and it is to engage in the stories of human beings that are not solely about power politics in certain respects. Appropriately, the first third of the book uh, opens up with the discussion of their crimes, the decisions they made at the helm of power, so to speak. To humanize them means to examine human stories that oftentimes we might find relatable or there might be parallels to our own lives because we are also human beings and there are certain similarities amongst human beings, no matter how diverse and different we can be. So to give an example of this, to humanize them is to talk about the fact that uh, Stalin deeply loved his daughter Svetlana and the aftermath of his second wife's suicide. It is to take the time to describe Joseph Stalin sending uh, these letters back and forth with his daughter, you know, saying, calling himself when he signs it, uh, the, your, you know, your wretched peasant Joseph, and sending these kind of uh, these letters back and forth that speak to a reality which we struggle to deal with, which is that Joseph Stalin was a mass murderer, uh, an individual who created extreme horror, and yet he could also be loving towards his daughter at times. There's far more to that story, by the way, about Stalin as a father. But um, he there were these human moments. To humanize them is to highlight these stories. Whereas someone might say, in contrast, you know, why should we care? And this is going to loop us back around to your opening question, Byron. Why should we care uh, that someone like, like Mao Zedong um, had a favorite type of food, right? Or loved to read classic Chinese literature. Um, the reason why we should care, again, comes back to the fact that to humanize them helps shed greater light on the reality that human beings do these things. And then if we are talking about human beings carrying out crime against humanity, and it's not only because of some end product that's beyond their control, for instance, it's, only, it's not only about childhood trauma or mental health issues, but about the decisions they made, to humanize them begs the question, what ideas did they embrace? Why did they embrace those ideas? And how did those ideas lead to such horror for men and women? You know, embedding in last answer, you said something that I, I want to stay with. I, I, I recall several years ago, the first time I visited the uh, uh, presidential library of Richard Nixon. And I was most impressed that the initial exhibit was Watergate, because Watergate was obviously the thing that most people have on their minds when they visit the Nixon library. And the fact that they, it was the initial exhibit it allowed me to be more judicious through the, the remainder of the, of, of the library. Mm. Um, I can appreciate what Nixon did or, and, and, you know, or, or not, uh, but Watergate was taken off the table. And I'm wondering, was that your thinking? Because you began by putting these atrocities right out front. Was, was, was that your thinking that you, if you put the atrocities right out front, we can uh, approach the rest of the text more judiciously? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in the sense that it was also part of a discussion with the publisher. If the book is in large part about the formative years of these men, you know, quote unquote, before they were evil, um, it is. It was determined by myself and the publisher to be absolutely indispensable to make sure that readers understand the extent of their crimes. And to give you a specific example of that, right? So when we're talking about um, someone like Joseph Stalin or Hitler, um, we make assumptions about what people know about their crimes. That, that can't just be left as an assumption. It needs to be spelled out in detail because uh, it is of, of utter importance for demonstrating that these are individuals who committed crimes against humanity and their guilt is absolute. And the same thing goes for someone like Mao Zedong or Kim Il-sung in North Korea, it feels important to not make assumptions about what people will know when it comes to Mao Zedong and the Great Leap Forward uh, or Kim Il-sung's crimes against his own people in North Korea. And in that regard, the book is not only aiming to lay out very clearly what these men did so we can have a much more judicious conversation about the way that they went in their lives that led to that, uh, but it's also about making this book accessible to far and, and wide-ranging audiences. Uh, this is not a book that is written only for scholars to be read by 500 other people. This is a book that is meant to engage audiences of all backgrounds and to en engage one of the most serious subjects that we possibly can, the humanity of inhumanity, the meaning of evil in the context of some of the worst dictators of the 20th century. If that conversation is going to be engaging and accessible in a way that has a larger intellectual payoff, then I, I would like all readers of all backgrounds to be able to sit down and, and, and come away from the opening part of the book with, I you know, feel like I fully understand, or this reiterates what I already understood. Uh, and also to come away with, I think, the conviction that there's no 
romanticizing uh, these men in any way. There's no, as if you humanize, sometimes people will say, does this kind of become um, a source of entertainment? Does, does this in some way remove them from the context of the horror they cause by examining them as individuals that might therefore come across likable or anything like that? Uh, so the book end and beginning, absolutely essential is that's not possible. These are horrible, horrible people. But we can try to relate to them as human beings for a larger purpose, which is that the sources of evil often lie within us, not as uh, something that comes from beyond, which we cannot understand. Oh, you just reminded me of a, a quote by Augustine who says, we should never fight evil as though it's something that existed outside of ourselves. So I sort of hear you saying that when you write the text. So, which, which sort of leads to my next question, what is, you sort of touched on this, but I want to expand, please. What is the significance, in your view, to discuss the childhood of individuals that have been negatively defined in the public discourse? It sort of goes to your earlier statement about why, why should we care? Well, now that you've brought up St. Augustine, uh, it's very exciting. Uh, there's a quote. Uh, I really like that one. There's one I, I have in the book that's talking about Lenin at the end of his life and the, the you know, the quote uh from that that famed saint is quote this dying life shall i call it or this living death how do we make sense of what it means to be a human being this dying life shall i call it or this living death uh, i return to a point of innocence in their lives and I, and i say point of innocence not in the context of noting um that there is any degree of innocence to their lives as a whole in the sense that they commit these terrible crimes but but there is a time when they are young, when they are not yet those mass murderers. And this question of who they were as children, who they were as little kids, very quickly reveals that the inclination to want to see this, the life story of mass murdering despots, these six in particular, is only a story about evil in the making. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't add up. <laughs> it doesn't work. Uh, Stalin, uh, Mao, Hitler have abusive fathers who have a, a big impact on their life. That is absolutely part of their story. But the story of their childhoods, Byron, is one that I think readers are going to find surprising. The story of, of Vladimir Lenin's childhood is um, one in which he comes from a, a lovely family. Uh, they are, they're not wealthy, but you might call them the, the equivalent of late 19th century Russia middle class. Um, they have a garden. Uh, Lenin grows up going sledding. They have Christmas trees. They dye Easter eggs. The mom is a wonderful teacher, uh, teaches the kids to pun in German and French. Uh, is a great pedagogue. Uh, he and his siblings grow up really happily. And so what is the purpose of examining their childhoods? Vladimir Lenin commits crimes against humanity in the Russian Civil War with the conviction that he's absolutely correct. He has people hanged and murdered who were like his own family. And he does it not saying, well, this is horrible. We have to do this. He does it with righteous fanaticism. What, what's the disconnect there? How, how do we get to that? How do we get from the notion of childhood innocence, right? He's, he's not innocent in the larger scheme of things, right? But there is a moment in his life that, that, that is, is different, right? Before he was evil to mass murdering evil. And historians appropriately focus on the story of his, his quote unquote career and power and the path leading up to that. But by zeroing in on, on his childhood and, and then examining the parallels with other childhoods, we see two major arguments that stand out in the book for me. One, that each of these men had great uh, had important privileges as children. And what do I mean by privileges? I, I mean that even though someone like Stalin grew up in poverty, he had a mom who was utterly dedicated to his education. He would receive educational opportunities that others did not. Um, I mean that across all of their lives, these six dictators, they all had the benefits of a, a good education with teachers that were influential for them. Uh, and, and they had the opportunity to fall in love with books as a result. <laughs> this the beginning story of their the evil that they would that they would cause for this world is not one just of childhood trauma because they're not all traumatized as kids they don't all have bad parents um, and also many people have traumatic childhoods and go on to be decent well empathetic adults right that's not the the formula for understanding this definitively um, it is that they have these educational opportunities and they fall in love with the power of ideas. And so one, they have privileges in their early lives that make it possible for them to later aspire to power. The, the engine of that is ideas and books and to be able to engage with a world beyond them. And then two, 
The story of their childhood speaks to individuals who from a very young age, far before Hitler uh, can uh, uh, imagine something like Nazism, right? Or the NSDAP, the Nazi party, uh, far before Vladimir Lenin, right? Is, is, is becoming entranced by the notion uh, of, of Marxism. We see kids who begin to imagine that they have something larger to do in this life. We see kids whose self-conviction that the, the hero, quote unquote, that the individual who will strive to fight for a better world, that he can have an impact, um, that he or she has something to do in this life that's profound. That's the story of their childhoods. That's what we see most prominently. Well, to, to that extent, did you at all ever struggle uh, in the writing process of finding that balance between re recounting the childhood of these individuals and at times wondering whether you might be too generous given who and what they became as adults? It's mm. a great question. Well, well, one, I think the effort is to struggle to be empathetic to them as children, knowing what they became. Um, you know, not necessarily just the notion of, you know, you know, quote unquote, being too generous, right? But the struggle to treat them with empathy is, um, is, a, is, is really difficult. How does one describe teenage Hitler, not as the Nazi dictator in the making, but as a, a kind of rather unimpressive teenager who really just wants to paint and be left alone by his dad, who wants him to become a civil servant? The classic, but dad, I want to be an artist, right? And, and some of the opening drafts, uh, some of the feedback I got was, uh, you know, your feelings about Hitler are shining through very clearly in this. How do you engage the story of someone who will become a mass murderer in a way that stays true to a core objective, which is that we examine their lives and early lives and their human stories with a degree of empathy, which in no way ever diminishes their guilt. It, is, it can no way mitigate the horror of their actions and their responsibility for them. But to examine human stories is what distinguishes us from what they became. And it is a task that can be a great burden to examine the story of Adolf Hitler taking care of his dying mother when she has breast cancer, uh, when he's on the verge of adulthood, just, uh, just, eight, just turning 18 years old in that context. It is our ability to treat them with a degree of compassion that can distinguish ourselves from their evil. And it raises the question, right, Byron? Do you feel, and this heightens the stakes, I think, right? Do we feel any degree of, of, of human compassion for Joseph Stalin laying in a pool of his own urine in 1953 as he dies of a stroke, in which guards are not coming in, they're waiting outside because they're afraid of him? Um, I, do, do we allow that? Do we feel any degree of concern for Benito Mussolini being dragged with his mistress in front of a gate and shot at the end of World War II. One anti-fascist journalist described that his execution was justice. To have spared his life would have been divine. Where do we come down in all of that? When it comes to their childhoods, I tell the story of children. I try to be true to the fact that these are individuals, young people. Uh, I think we, we can empathize with their human stories before these individuals became evil. And it is, it is a difficult and trying task at times. Well, I, th I think I think uh, part of the, the the difficulty I think uh, having read the text is is many of how we approach these things with our pre the power of our preconceived notions. So, for for example, um, early on, you 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 reference um, the less familiar names of these protagonists, like Stalin was uh, Soso, and talk about. Why did you use these less familiar names that largely their family used for them? And what was the thinking behind that? I, I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, that is a, a direct effort to counteract our inclination to only view them through the lens of, of what they became. And, you know, I frame that again with it, it is appropriate when we talk about Adolf Hitler or, or Joseph Stalin to start that conversation with the immense horror they caused by clearly, clearly uh, describing their crimes and, and being very upfront about that. Uh, that is the, the, the defining element of their lives. But it's not the only defining element of their lives. Uh, evil alone did not define them. And the narrative uses the first names of the 
protagonist in question, these, these dictators, uh, for, for a couple of different reasons. Um, the first is that, and by the way, Byron, this goes against every educator instinct in my body. Is there anything more trying than when a student in a college classroom or a high school classroom says, so I want to talk about what Mary said in the reading. And you're like, I'm sorry, do you mean, do you mean Wollstonecraft? Are you, refer are you referencing Wollstonecraft right now? We're, we're not getting coffee with Wollstonecraft, right? We're not going to call her Mary, right? And, and so that, that's a different example, you know, um, a great thinker from the Enlightenment. And so by calling these dictators Adolf or Benito or Soso or Runja, um, <laughs> this or Sungju for Kim Il-sung, this goes against what historians do, which is normally to describe them uh, through the context of, you know, their, their quote unquote careers, and the, the first name almost becomes this kind of trivial point uh, that as educators, you know, we try to in, in, instill in kids, this is not just an ordinary person that we're going to call by their first name. I do it for the following two reasons, Byron. Uh, one, I, I, by calling Joseph Stalin Stalin, we're already bolstering his cult of personality. Stalin means man of steel. Uh, I, I'm not telling you that in the introduction and parts of the book, I don't refer to him as Stalin. This is how we know this in a, this person. But I, I think there is something to be said for, for engaging in a story about their lives. Uh, how do we reject cults of personalities? And by cult of personality, I mean that Stalin created a system of rule in which he was worshipped like a god. And the notion of Stalin using the bathroom or having these human needs was highly inappropriate to ever bring up. By calling Stalin Soso, his mother's childhood nickname for him, that uh, rejects his cult of personality. By calling Hitler Adolf, he would have hated that. He, he would have hated that because it is a rejection of this quote-unquote Führer pedestal, the notion of the leader without humanity. Um, it is a rejection of their cult of personality. And so that is the, the first major reason to reject personas of oppression by making them into these ordinary human beings, which are also part of their lives, even as we examine the story of extraordinary evil within the larger story of, 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 of their times and power. Uh, so the second reason is, as I was saying before, uh, their youths would always remain part of their identity, their formative years stories before they were evil, before they were engaging this ideological fanaticism and committing crimes. This is also part of their story. Um, Stalin's relationship with his mother is part of this story. Um, by calling him so-so, we also enable readers throughout the course of the book to perhaps for a moment begin to read a human story that is not only about the, who Stalin became, but about who he was to begin with. Um, and what we end up with is something that overlaps. We see Stalin and uh, the mid-1930s, meeting his mother, who he doesn't see very often in the end. And she says to him, who are you now? What, what is it you do? And, and listeners were talking about Stalin nearly at the height of his power, meeting his elderly mother the last time they will meet, a mother who worked so hard to get this kid into school to allow him to almost become a priest through going to the seminary. And uh, KK, his mother, will say, who are you now? What is it you do? And he'll say, mom, uh, Oh, you remember the czar? I'm like the czar. <laughs> and she'll say an, a witty riposte. It would have been better if you became a priest. What is, in your view, the, the detriment if we simply hold these individuals, let's say, as if this, this momentarily, your text doesn't exist. So what's the danger to us by holding... Stalin solely as the man of steel or, or Hitler, the Fuhrer, so on and so forth. What, what is the danger to us historically if we just keep them frozen in, in those places? Well, I think the inclination is to do that because it's certainly more comfortable. The notion of what do you have in common with Joseph Stalin is going to often elicit a strong response because we need to believe that the evil that these individuals propagated is something that is not part of the human condition, that this is from hell. This is, this is born of another universe. Uh, and that, you know, this is something that is beyond any human beings control, that it is inexplicable. That is extremely dangerous. The story of crimes against humanity must be made explicable. And so our inclination to other, to demonize, now it's appropriate, right, to demonize and, and to speak about Hitler, Stalin, Mao, Mussolini, Kim, and Lenin is monstrous. That's appropriate. But to describe them as actual monsters is a, a dangerous road to go down. 
because it suggests not only that evil is inexplicable, that there is this larger caricature of the monster, um, the, the ghoul, which just happens, right? Uh, it's just something that happens to us. And this is part of, of humanity to struggle with these inhuman monsters. The reality that history demonstrates over and over and over is that we are susceptible to ideological fanaticism and righteousness that leads to terrible crimes against humanity because we begin to believe the ends justify the means. A listener might critique this and say, do you mean to imply that there's an inner Hannibal Lecter in all of us, right? That somewhere lurking within us, there is this this evil Stalin, right? Or, Or Mao that wants to commit these crimes. I am saying that homo sapiens are susceptible to ideological fanaticism uh, and to an ends justifies the means logic, which can lead to acts of cruelty on a small scale, but also a very big scale. And that the first step to avoiding that road is to admit that it is, it is to be humble and say, I am not special. I too and susceptible to begin to believe in something so strongly, to really begin to believe it's right. And then I say to you, surely you agree with me. And what must we do to achieve this? And if we do not pursue it, are we ourselves not complicit in that evil? George F. Kennan will say at the beginning of the Cold War that the greatest threat the United States faced in struggling against the Soviet Union was that in seeking to combat it, that we ourselves become like it. If we describe these men as something from another universe, we lose perspective on how we ourselves too can go down a very bad road and start to do terrible things believing they're right. Listeners, these dictators we're talking about that are in before evil, they believed they were right. That should keep us up at night. I mean, what, what, what you just detailed, isn't that part of the narrative uh, that justified um, the internment of German Americans in World War I and the internment of Japanese Americans in World War II? that what you just talked about, the complexity of the human condition? It is the really disturbing inclination of human beings to put the humanity of other human beings aside for political goals, social, cultural objectives, however you define it. And you see it play out over and over and over. And the book is not really only about the formative years of these dictators before they were evil alongside the story of their crimes. It is a argument about the necessity of compassion and empathy and mercy alongside strength and holding people accountable. But when we begin to engage in a political dialogue where empathy becomes a defect and and the notion of one person saying, yes, but what will be the human consequence of this uh, begins to fall by the wayside, that's a dangerous road. By the way, Vladimir Lenin would laugh at us right now. Lenin would mock this conversation, Byron, and he would say, how hypocritical. How often has the United States used fearsome, violent means for larger political ends? And is that not the story of war? Is this not what Karl von Clausewitz, the intellectual godfather, if you will, of modern warfare in his On War book from the 19th century, famously describes wars, the continuation of politics by other means, that we're now going to use violence for the sake of a larger goal? Is this not the norm? Um, Vladimir Lenin would chime in and say that, I imagine. And I think the response to that is, the need for us to think very carefully, particularly countries in the midst of military conflicts, about the decisions they make and how do crimes against humanity happen? Not demons sitting in an office giggling at the horror they will cause. But as C.S. Lewis says, and something Ronald Reagan will paraphrase in his 1983 Evil Empire speech, that the greatest evil happens not only in concentration camps, there we see its end result, but it happens in well-lit offices that are warm, with men dressed in white collared shirts who don't have to yell, but calmly give orders. And in doing so, they commit this immense evil where the empathy, the need for empathy for other human beings, the, the misery they're going to cause, well, that falls by the wayside. That that is no longer uh, a central part of the story of what we're trying to achieve. Uh, when you were saying that Lenin might call us hypocritical, I, I was thinking to myself, and, and this coming uh from a bourgeois, hardly um, the way Karl Marx drew it up. Okay, if you say so. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, if you think about um, Karl Marx and the way he, he you know, he, he draws all of this up, where does Karl Marx come from? Uh, yeah, we are again returning to the childhood of someone, and Karl Marx, like Vladimir Lenin, is uh, extremely intelligent, uh, a person of great erudition. And, and, and by the way, we can say these things while not necessarily endorsing someone's ideas or losing sight of the harm that their ideas cause, right? This would be an example of humanizing. 
we can engage with the notion that uh, these individuals intellectually have certain facets to, to their mind and their worldview without necessarily, uh, you know, in any way excusing what it is they do. Karl Marx comes from a, a, a background, right, where he has certain educational advantages, and that makes it, the future of his life indispensable. Not to mention, if we're on the notion of hypocrisy, Byron, that, <laughs> that Karl Marx gets financial help from Engels, whose family runs a factory and yes, are essentially yes. our capitalists, which they probably would have framed it as humorous, you know. I mean, of course, the system will eat itself within and will take advantage. Uh, Vladimir Lenin, yeah, he'll say at a questionnaire when he's a Bolshevik dictator of the Soviet Union, the world's first communist dictator. Of course, the Bolsheviks have everyone fill out class questionnaires. Tell us about your class background. Uh, Lenin, he had the, he, he did one. He wrote um, Nobleman because his, his family <laughs> were... Yeah, his, his dad became a hereditary noble through working himself up in the educational system uh, of, of Tsarist Russia and how, held the rank of hereditary noble, which you know, went on to, to Lenin. Yeah, so Lenin with grim humor. And by the way, that cuts at the exact point of the book. We see someone now who has the cognizance to know who he is, where he is from, and that he's murdering other people like his father, calling them bloodsuckers. And it's not because of, uh, you know, People might say, was this about trauma or mental health condition? This was about a free thinking individual who became a zealot and did these things with utter righteousness, and it makes him more guilty. Since, since, since we talked earlier this year, uh, Russia has invaded Ukraine. Uh, what were your thoughts, if any, um, and that may have related to this current project? Yeah, uh, I've, I've been given that a lot of thought. A lot the inclination is for us to want to come away with a caricature of Vladimir Putin, which is, again, this ghoulish dictator who you know, probably delights in the horror that he's causing and has uh, you know, no second thoughts about the misery that he is creating and is you know, happy to see it happen. And that surely, where did such a person come from? Well, I imagine he had, and by the way, I'm speaking now of what people might assume, that surely this person came from a child of, of, of great trauma, um, you know, uh, probably, probably extreme poverty, uh, someone maybe who has this deeper rage at the world. These are the assumptions that we often make, right? That's not the story of Vladimir Putin. That's not the story of his childhood. He, he came from doting parents who deeply loved him. His parents survived the siege of Leningrad uh, in World War II, and his parents experienced great horror in that conflict, and were very lucky to survive that. Uh, but he grew up with parents who were utterly determined that their son was going to have certain advantages in the Soviet Union. Um, someone who, when he, you know, he goes to school, um, begins to think about himself, not in the context of what harm will I cause in the world, but similarly to these other dictators, what will I do to make this a better place, this world, this country. As a teenager, uh, Vladimir Putin uh, falls in love with a spy book and then a, a novel called The Shield and the Sword. And it is the story of KGB spies, espionage, defending the Soviet Union, defending the motherland against these larger threats. And he becomes enraptured by that. Okay, a kid from a good family, good parents, who, who love him and want him to be successful. A kid <clears throat> who is able to go to school. Uh, the story of Putin's time at school is a more complex one. He gets in some trouble. There's some issues there. He's always a fighter. Uh, that is a part of his personality. Someone who falls in love with narratives of heroism and begins to dream that he will become a spy. Uh, you know, by the way, when he is in, uh, he's in university, this is someone who actually will walk into a KGB office, Byron, and volunteer to be a spy. Can you imagine walking into the CIA and saying, I would like to volunteer to be a spy? Uh, he was politely told, his dad might have had KGB links, by the way, but he, he, young Putin was politely told, that is not how this works. <laughs> you cannot come in and volunteer to be a spy. We would urge you to go back to school, study law or what have you, and maybe we'll be in touch. And that's exactly what happened. So when I hear about everything going on right now, I would warn very, very strongly to not fall temptation to not not fall prey to the temptation to describe Vladimir Putin as always this monster in the making, but to see a human story. And then through humanizing, we, humanizing him, we come away with something I think that is more challenging. Putin believes what he's doing is right. He believes he is playing uh, the hero in a larger story of his own making. 
And it is not because he is simply struggling from you know, one mental health issue or because he had a traumatic childhood. That's, that's not the story. It's what happens when we believe our own truths to such an extent that the ends justify the means. And whatever harm that's happening, well, this is upsetting, but there's this larger goal and surely we must do it and I will do it. That's Vladimir Putin. Uh, might we see an inclusion of Vladimir Putin and others um, in the second edition of Before Evil? <laughs> I wish there had been a seventh, Byron. I, I, I wish there had been a, a seventh. Uh, I might, in a subsequent work, be interested in examining the human stories of those who are on the other side of the paradigm, to look at the stories of men and women who actually did great things for the world and, and, and engaged the world through uh, with, with, with great morality, and people who acted with great empathy for the experiences of others. Someone, for instance, um, like, you know, we could look at Mother Teresa or Dr. King and so on and to examine their human stories, right? To not only see, if this is a book about seeing, you know, the notion of monsters in the making and looking at something far more complex, I think we have the inclination to only see the marble man or woman, you know, this individual who does something truly great for the world, right? Um, and to, through examining in that context, lose sight of a relatable humanity, which again speaks to the fact on the other side of the paradigm, it is not only, there's not just this notion of the supernatural being who does great good or great harm, it's human beings. And then it comes down to the question of what we do with our lives. And yet how do we frame that with a degree of humility again about the fact that many of those who do great things do it believing that they are, are right. And many who do horrible, horrible things do it believing they're right. Well, now we're getting to a place of complexity and confusion, which speaks to the reality of the world around us. And so I'm interested in that. Since uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, was there anyone in particular that you featured in Before Evil that might make an apt comparison to Putin, at least as an adult, or even the childhood from, from what you know about Putin's childhood? That's a, that's a great question. One that immediately comes to mind. And I would qualify this, right, is that it's not um, going to be a clean and neat equating of this person with Vladimir Putin, but I do see uh, certain parallels. If one thing is happening right now, perhaps, and this is you know, not something literally happening, but if one thing we could imagine happening right now, it's that uh, the ghost of Thucydides, who writes the history of the Peloponnesian War, is leaning into Vladimir Putin's ear and repeating an old maxim, which is, War is a stern teacher. I would see the parallel with that, with someone like Benito Mussolini, uh, that you know Vladimir Putin has gone to war, causing uh, great harm in a war that didn't have to happen. That is, he is now a war criminal. He is guilty of crimes against humanity. He is guilty of the loss of tens of thousands of life. Mothers, Russian and Ukrainian, whose kids won't be coming home, that's on him. He is guilty of that. Uh, the parallel I see with that, particularly in terms of the Thucydides quote about war and war being a stern teacher is Mussolini, that it, Mussolini will plunge Italy into the Second World War. He thinks it's going to be over in a few weeks. You know, he says we just will lose a few thousand. This is also a horrible thing to say because we'll lose a few thousand lives and then we'll be at the peace table and we'll get like, this huge. Um, we will gain strategically in terms of power of Italy as a result of what happens in a very quick war. He thinks Germany is going to win the war very quickly. Vladimir Putin thought that the war in Ukraine, I think by all accounts, what we know thought that this was going to unfold very quickly. It wasn't about occupying the entirety of a country of 45 million people. It was about the fact that the Ukrainian government would surely collapse quickly. Uh, Russian special forces seizing strategic sites like outside of Kiev and the major airbase there. The war would be over quickly. You install Petit Putin and you leave. But that's not what happened, obviously. And Mussolini discovers that in the Second World War, uh, in which things go disastrously wrong. And this maxim of war is a stern teacher. Huh, is that tr more true than ever? Now, if we zoom out further, it's not only that uh, Mussolini learns, um, I think, up front, the reality or has to grapple with the reality that things are not going like he wanted them to go, that reality does not only come down to an autocrat <laughs> dictates, wants to see happen. <clears throat> Mussolini was a fighter as a kid. He was. Uh, he was someone who more fits the early mold of the brute. 
he, as a kid, you know, he would, when he got into fights with other kids, he fought back hard. He would throw rocks. And some of this is a degree of bravado we see in his own writings. Uh, but he is expelled from a school for stabbing another kid in the hand at one point. And by the way, this is the story of Mussolini. People will say, oh, he was always this monstrous uh, individual in the making. There's more to it than that, but he was a brutish kid and he did get in a lot of fights. Direct parallel to Vladimir Putin. Putin um, does get in fights as a kid. He is a fighter. Um, he is someone who has a temper and we see that play out between their lives. Uh, at one point, by the way, uh, when Vladimir Putin is in the KGB and isn't in, in, in intelligence, uh, he gets into a fist fight in the uh, St. Petersburg Metro, Leningrad Metro. Uh, Byron, step one, if you are, if you were doing espionage or intelligence work, don't get in fist fights in public. Uh, that really hurt his career. That really hurt his career. Uh, and he, that was not ideal. So we see, I think the, the parallel one that Mussolini gets in over his head very quickly in the second world war. He is responsible for crimes against humanity. And even before that, with the invasion of Ethiopia, he commits crimes against humanity the Italian colonialism in Libya, crimes against humanity are committed. But particularly in the World War, in World war II, he gets in over his head and he has to grapple with the fact that, wait, wait a minute, this is not going how I dictate that it will. Putin's experiencing that now. Um, but their childhood, you see this kind of brutish overlap of, of physicality. Uh, and I, th I think that would be a standout a couple parallels. I'm speaking with history professor Brandon Gaucher of Fordham University, uh, the home of Vince Lombardi, just had to throw that in there, uh, <laughs> about his latest book, Before Evil, Young Lenin, Hitler, Stalin, Mao, and Kim. Professor Gaucher, the focus of Before Evil is six of the most brutal authoritarians in world history. Uh, and if we add Putin, um, he'd be number seven. Um, Three of the seven hail from Russia, what was once called the Soviet Union. Any thoughts why authoritarianism historically runs deep in that region? Hmm. That's a hard question. And I would want to be cautious about uh, generalizing about you know, Russian culture or politics. And so I would frame that carefully. Uh, in one sense, you have someone might speak to the larger history of authority rooted in the czar, which was the notion of viewing the czar as almost like a godlike figure, that it was the authority of the czar which spoke to um, how you would create stability in such a vast land of so many time zones, for instance. Uh, and the one thing that the czar had over the Russian people was, again, widespread commitment that this is a larger than life person who is guiding the state. And that was a way of unifying such a diverse and complex land that was over such a sprawling landmass. Uh, so I, I would say that might be one thing some people would say that some historians might speak to. Uh, what I might most strongly emphasize is the historical turmoil that we see in Russia, which gives rise to the possibility of certain ideological, of certain fanatical ideologies taking center stage. Um, the story of how Bolshevism, the Soviet Union comes to be, which then leads to something like Joseph Stalin, um, is uh, not necessarily, I think, this inclination to believe in the larger story that Russian politics and culture will always be defined by this stronger authority. Uh, we could have that discussion. There's something to that, that, that is an important one. But I would think about the historical moments which create the vacuum of power, which give rise to new forms of, of radical ideology. The reason why the Bolsheviks take power in October 1917 is not because Bolsheviks overthrew the Tsar with widespread support for communism. It's because World War I led to the overthrow of the Tsar because women in St. Petersburg were going hungry. And then you have a provisional democratic government, which is now weakening the government and giving rise to a new radical ideology taking shape. If we look at something like Vladimir Putin, we're also seeing uh, moments of great historical consequence, giving space for that type of leader to, to come to to come to the forefront. We see the collapse of communism in the Soviet Union as the result of a more liberalizing leader like Mikhail Gorbachev. We see great suffering in Russia in the 1990s, which is important to note. Um, democracy and, and crash capital, capitalism in the 1990s, a really difficult time for the Russian people. The 1990s are, are very, very difficult in many respects. And it is out of that, uh, that distinct brew, if you will, that we see someone like Vladimir Putin come to the forefront um, and, and for someone like Putin, we don't see a, a violent seizure of power. Uh, what we see is someone handpicked by, by Yeltsin, 
who will ultimately become quite popular very quickly. Uh, and, and in that, I, I think, again, we are now struggling with the inclination to want to believe, well, these horrible dictators always come to the forefront because they violently seize power, right? Um, and the story of how they find themselves in those moments, well, there are myriad historical variables, which I think would transcend any uh, one kind of, um, I think, attractive but reductive assumption of, of variables that this is what causes it. You, you just reminded me when you, when you mentioned uh, Boris Yeltsin, I, I just uh, must admit, whenever I hear the name Boris Yeltsin, Barney Rubble immediately comes to my mind, but that's that I digress. Um, you got to think of him on the tank. You got to think of the military coup. At the end of the game. That's the Yeltsin you got to think of, right? The Yeltsin exactly. on the tank standing up for democracy in Russia, so to speak. Um, you know, I'm sure he would prefer that image. Um, but but it, one, I think a historical comparison that, that we might make, John, and I'm thinking about just based on your last answer, is I would venture to say what we know about Boris Yeltsin. He may, if he were alive today, he might say I was wrong about Putin, just as Lenin might say, which is really scary, I was wrong about Stalin. <laughs> yeah, well, I, str I struggle with that in the sense that, let's start with Lenin and Stalin, there was the inclination among historians uh, in the decades that follow during and after Stalin's time in power to say that Stalin was a deviation from Leninism, and that if Lenin had survived, the Soviet Union would likely have evolved along more humane lines, or at least a less extreme terror. Something like Lenin had created the new economic policy in the last years of his life to try to create some retrenchment of state capitalism and what will be the Soviet Union to stop people from starving to death. Uh, and that's really problematic. Vladimir Lenin was incredibly radical during the Civil War. He commits crimes against humanity. Stalin is the Stalin is in many ways the evolution of Lenin's ideas to a more radical place. And what we see in Lenin's life is not you know the more humane communist dictator. He was vicious in power, vicious, and we see Stalin taking that to an extreme, which doesn't seem to come from nowhere all of a sudden, uh, but <laughs> comes from the person one of the few, one of the people who really loved Lenin and and and, and supported him completely. When we look at someone like Boris Yeltsin, I think it is more complex, but, but what we do see is that Yeltsin's inclination, and readers could check out uh, Masha Gessen's The Man Without a Face. She writes for The New Yorker, and it's a wonderful, it's an important book describing this relationship at times between Yeltsin and Putin. Um, we see someone like Yeltsin leaning towards someone like Putin, who's relatively unknown at this point, you know, kind of comes from nowhere. He's the director of the FSB, their version of the CIA. But in many respects, he's not a prominent politician at all. Someone who will not prosecute or persecute Boris Yeltsin after he leaves office. By putting Vladimir Putin in power, it is uh, for Boris Yeltsin almost a degree of insurance for him that uh, this new government is not going to turn on him and start to ask hard questions about his finances. There's more to it than that, certainly. Uh, but the notion of how Boris Yeltsin would respond to Vladimir Putin today, that we, we, don't, we don't get to know that. That's a counterfactual. We can make assumptions that's, that are interesting. Uh, for Lenin and how Lenin might have spoken about Stalin, we can look at his last testimony or his last will and testament, which uh, a historian like Stephen Kotkin has said that he thinks Lenin's wife wrote it. For listeners, before Lenin dies, his last will and testament, or last testament, so to speak, uh, criticizes Stalin. He says he's too harsh. He's rude. He's gone too far in terms of the power. Um, so I might say that that's proof that Lenin would have criticized Stalin. Um, we don't know that for certain. We don't know for certain that Lenin definitively wrote that document, that his wife didn't write it, who, who hated Stalin. We don't know what would have been said, but uh, it is an interesting counterfactual discussion. I have long held that I learned more about the book that I'm writing after it goes to press. And I'm wondering, uh, have you learned anything additional that you'd like to share about Before Evil since we spoke earlier this year that may be included in a potential second edition? <laughs> I, I think the challenge of that for me is that it's not that I've had any one epiphany or any one distinct change or addition to my thinking as much as uh, the parallels in their lives and the story of the book, which is about this notion of the humanity of inhumanity and the need for compassion and empathy along, alongside strength to combat them. 
um, has only taken hold that much more deeply. And that it is, I think, something like Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine uh, and the war crimes that Russia is committing there, which is a reminder. These things, and I hate to say this, but this is the reality. These things are not done. That man's capacity, men and women's capacity, to do horrific acts of cruelty to other human beings, um, that this remains a danger in the world today. And then we have the obligation to ask ourselves, and this is, I think, something I feel more strongly about than ever as a result of writing the book. What message do we offer? What is the moral obligation we have to grapple with our own susceptibility to fanaticism and to what we say to ourselves and others around us to combat that? And, and that, for me, is what I say at the end of the book, which is what I tell people of all backgrounds, uh, particularly students, um, that the quote-unquote lesson we derive from the use of these awful men, and forgive me, but I'm now drawing on the very last page of the book, is recognizing that we ourselves can become the monsters we deplore. As we make hard decisions in pursuit of what we believe is right, grappling with infinite complexities amid personal challenges, we can guard against that reality by embracing empathy. This guiding value can shield us from the blinding light we often run towards in pursuit of far-reaching ends that may seemingly compel us to undertake cold means. Reject the tuneful dogmatism of sirens who pull us towards disaster by ignoring or denying the humanity of others, including the heinous. Encourage new generations to think of their actions through the lens of suffering we cause or diminish for others. Distinguish yourself by striving to interpret the meaning of human experience, past and present, with compassion, even if it is often lacking before what we study in history. Courageous opposition is needed to confront tyranny over the ages, but so too is love and mercy. The onus is on us. Brandon Gaucher, before evil, thank you again and congratulations on, on, the, on the release of the text. And thank you for joining us once again on the public morality, sir. Much appreciated. Oh, the, Byron, the pleasure's all mine. I really have enjoyed speaking with you. Uh, and if listeners would be uh, interested in acquiring the book, then go to beforeevil.com where you can learn more. Byron, thanks again for having me on. My pleasure. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Rally on WSNC can now listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click Open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama for allowing us to broadcast the Paul McRally at their studios. The Paul McRally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Paul McRally, I'm Byron Williams.